Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Jordan Rothline from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. A musician, performance artist, DJ, radio host, club organizer, label owner, and more, Gudrun Gut is also a feminist icon who has been at the forefront of forward-thinking music in Berlin for decades. After moving to the city in the 70s to study visual communication at the Hochschule der Künste, she co-founded Einstürzende Neubauten, a pioneering band of the German avant-garde and industrial scene. While Gut left shortly after Einstürzende Neubauten's initial gigs, she went on to play in several more influential bands, including Mania D, all-female post-punk band Malaria, and the more synth-led Matador. In the 90s, Gut founded two record labels, Moabit Music and Monica Enterprise, both of which exclusively released the work of female artists. After decades of collaborative work, Gut surprised listeners with her acclaimed 2007 debut, I Put a Record On, on which she made surprising forays into down-tempo electronic music. Today, in addition to running her labels and making new music, she is a host on Ocean Club Radio and works as an active member of the International Female Pressure Network. In this episode of Couch Wisdom, recorded at the 2018 Red Bull Music Academy in Berlin, Goot reflected on musical life in the city before and after the fall of the wall, why she prefers collectives over bands, and how she feels more free now than ever. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. We are at Funkhaus, as you all know, and it's, I had to look that up, but it's four kilometers to what used to be the closest checkpoint uh, between East and West Berlin, which was at Sonnenallee. And it's another kilometer from there to where actually the last refugee from Eastern Germany got shot by um, the border police of the GDR. That was in February 1989, a point at which had, you had lived for 14 years in Berlin by that point. Were you aware what was going on? How were you aware what was going on around the world? Oh, yes, I came to Berlin in 1975. I, came, I was grown up in North Germany in the Heatherlands. <clears throat> and naturally, we, as West Germans, we knew that West Berlin was occupied, as it was surrounded by the Red Sea. <laughs> That's what they called it. The in the media, or did you, among your peers, call the, it the in the Red media, Sea? The, the, the Red Sea was a communism, the DDR. And uh, so to get from West Germany to West Berlin, you had to cross the Red Sea. And the Autobahn was very bad. <laughs> and we, ha we had to be very uh, nice uh, people at the border and smile and not make jokes because otherwise they won't let you through and this kind of stuff. So it was pretty serious. Can you still remember that very first journey when you came from Lüneburger Heide, which is kind of like northern, very flat yeah. lands in, in West Germany, and then you had to cross East Germany, this very first visit, how, how did it work? Did you, could you bring I records, for example? I super well, because um, I came with my then boyfriend who was gay, half gay, and he wanted to show, I was like, 15 or 16, and he wanted to show me uh, West Berlin, where his gay friends were, and he used to work in a, a antiqua bookshop, and he wanted to show me his Berlin, and I had no idea about it. I didn't even know. And then we came here. I, I don't remember the, the drive, but I remember getting off at Schlesisches Tor, and suddenly... Like there was this smell, there were this people shouting, it was lively, it was dirty. I simply loved it. 
because West Germany was super sterile and everything was organized and, you know, I couldn't breathe anymore there. And that's where, where, when I decided to go to Berlin. And you applied for art yeah. university? Yeah, I studied at the uh, Akademie der, uh, Hochschule der Künste, HDK, now UDK, Academy for Arts, so, yeah. I studied visual communication. Was that because some of your early music projects, which we're obviously going to get to, have sort of like verged into performance art? Was that part of your studies to to learn about or do performance art at uni? No, no, no. no I w uh, actually, I wanted to become a, a experimental filmmaker. That was my idea. I wanted to be, uh, yeah. And then I learned at the because uh, visual communication was then kind of I didn't want to be a painter because my understanding of art was a little bit further than painting, and so I wanted to become an experimental filmmaker and video and stuff. And I did it as well. But then I learned at the university that it's really hard to survive with it. That you need to apply for money for it and that it takes a long, long time. And then came punk music and I thought, oh, I better form a band. <laughs> because I wanted to have it quick. I wanted to do something. I, wanted, I was eager to kind of... Impatient. Impatient, Epic. totally. <laughs> I mean, looking at your discography, sort of anyone's discography who was around in West Berlin at that time and it feels like there were about like 200 people and everyone was in a band with everyone <laughs> at one point. Can you still remember or can you tell us what your very first life experience was? Who was that with and where? Uh, my fir very first band was a band called uh, Dina Fear with uh, four girls but we never uh, did any concerts. We only tried out clothes and did some rehearsals. And then we joined in with a band called Test Build. Me and Coca-Cola on drums, I played the stylophone, which is a little toy keyboard. And we formed Dean Art Test Build. And we played the SO36, which, which still exists. And... Um, <clears throat> That was the opening of it, I think, and David Bowie was there. <laughs> but SO36, it, it used to be a Turkish place, right? Be, before it became... Yeah. And then they, uh, they, in and uh, on and off, they used it for, for marriage, Turkish, Turkish marriage. And then uh, Kippenberger, Martin Kippenberger, for those who are into arts, might have heard his name. He, uh, at one point, uh, took over the SO36 later and got uh, Lydia Lunch to play and James Chance and the Contortions and New Yorker underground stuff and then but before um, <clears throat> that was later I think uh, I'm a little bit uh, That's confused okay. with time Thanks. No one's <laughs> anyway gonna... <laughs> 30, SO36 was a really kind of important venue for punk times in the 80s we played there very often we organized parties ourselves there and with, and played with Mania D and Malaria very often. These sort of like different worlds that existed in West Berlin at that time, a large um, Turkish community in Kreuzberg predominantly, and then sort of you guys, um, the art school, maybe some sort of like very like highly complex politics. How did that clash? Did you, did you feel like you could just do whatever you wanted, also in terms of fashion, for example? In a way, <laughs> because um, Berlin, nobody cared about what happened in Berlin, West Berlin then, because it was kind of, here in, in West Berlin only uh, pensionists were living and students and people who didn't want to go in the army because Berlin was a kind of occupied from... Uh, occupied sector, free sector, so you didn't have to go to the army. And so this is, uh, was pretty young people and old people. There was no businesses, no real business happening. So we could do whatever we wanted, I think. There was a big um, uh, feminist movement 
a big uh, gay, co gay, gay community. Related to the fact that you could escape your army duties when moving from West Germany to Berlin, yeah. we should say. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Was it difficult to get specific things to West Berlin then? Was it difficult to sort of get records across the border or clothes or whatever? And how did that, did that influence your little store that you had? Uh, the, uh, <clears throat> the problem was that there were, uh, were no real, you know, fashion shops like you have now. All this, you know, we went, we, in those days, we, we were going to England, to London, to go shopping, because it was much cheaper than now. And they had the young designers who sold their clothes in little shops, and that's where we went. And then, uh, so we thought, oh, Berlin needs a, we, we need to open a shop where we can uh, sell, like, Berlin designers and get some stuff from the flea market and change it over and, and I did I bought a knitting machine and was knitting stuff and like really nice trousers for men I was knitting Knit, knitted trousers for men yes you could make a fortune with <laughs> those now probably they were do any cool. still and exist and no I don't I have some pictures but not much they were they still look good actually But that was, you, you kind of finished, no, you were still going to art uni, mm -hmm. I guess. And you, you just opened a store because it was so cheap that you could just do that. Yeah, Bettina had uh, found the store and she lived in the back. It was just the, uh, easy to rent because it had the store in the front and an apartment in the back. And she was living there and she asked me, shall we open a store? And I said, yeah, why not? Like, <laughs> And then we called it Eisengrau because we painted it all in iron grey, which is Eisengrau. And yeah. And apart from Bettina, who has been like a very important collaborator of yours ever yeah. since, there was also another person living in the store. Is that right? There was a, a young gentleman who kind of like half lived in the in the store. I mean, Blixer. Yes. I said, yeah. <laughs> I, I, um, after Bettina found a different apartment, she didn't want to do the shop anymore, and so Blixer came in. He, uh, they changed. So I continued the shop with Blixer Bargeld from Anschlussner Norbert. But we were all friends before, and we used to play in a band together and stuff. And that that's kind of pre Anschlussner Neubauten. Oh, that's true. Side, right? That's so true. so <laughs> what, what kind of? I mean, how do? You, a guy like him, what, what was he doing? Which kind of art pieces? How was he performing art in the city at that time? Uh, no, he didn't perform at all. We, um, we had Mania D, I think that was the time we had Mania D. And our rehearsal room was in Blixer's other apartment before. I think it was So he afterwards. lived in your store and you rehearsed in his oh, yeah. flat? Must have been afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been afterwards. Anyway, we rehearsed in his apartment, the cellar of his apartment, and he wanted to have a band as well. And me and Beate joined Neubauten for the first year. And there was Andrew, uh, Blixer, Beate, me, and I think Suse. So it was kind of a 50-50 band, 50 female. <clears throat> and then... Uh, Afterwards, I went on with Mania D and Blixer. We split. You, you stayed friends, though. You made yeah, music we stayed. Much we were friends before, uh, and we were uh, sharing our, you know, love for music. We had similar musical taste. We Because both loved Noi. <laughs> the band Noi. Yeah, the band Noi. Um, Because the music that sort of you were making with Mania D and then Malaria kind of resembles Einstürzen und Neubauten in a way that it's, it sounds new. It's not that much related to sort of like music with traditional instruments. Mm -hmm. And you, I know that 
you were kind of doing it with this idea of like not actually learning an instrument and sort of just doing stuff. But at the mm. same time, you had a sound engineer on stage, which I think in electronic music is sort of the equivalent of a classically trained musician in a band with instrumentalists. You did have a super pro in in your band, right? Which Beate is Bartle. which is Beate. Yeah, Beate was a sound technician, and she was part of Mania D. Yeah. So yeah, you can call it that. <laughs> But uh, the idea, there was this movement in Berlin called the Geniale Dilettanten, the genius dilettants. That that was the whole, that was a scene in the beginning of the 80s. All the bands, uh, Neubauten, Mania D, Malaria, Tödliche Doris, Sprung aus den Wolken. There were lots of bands in Berlin and co different collaborations. And we all kind of, uh, there was this big festival called Genius Dilettants, where we could um, associate with, because it was similar in New York as well, that you didn't want to be this super genius instrumentalist. It was much more about crea creativity than to be a good, like comparing it with art, we didn't want to be a good painter. We wanted to do art, you know, kind of thing. But we don't want to do music in reference to the art scene a little bit. And uh, the idea was that, that uh, you, uh, and it was a revolution, a revolt against the music which was played on the radio, which was overproduced, LA stuff, Toto and this, like, we didn't like this at all. We wanted to have something simple, but street-orientated, um, and it was very fashionable to change instruments after each song. Because <laughs> that was, at the beginning of the 80s, was the thing to do. But because we didn't want to... Uh, do a guitar solo or something that we was totally forbidden to do a guitar solo it was uh, there were rules how music should be you know uh, the drums shouldn't uh, no drum no solos at all like simple stuff uh, uh, something surprise the others do something you've never done before and all this little uh, strange rules. That's sort of similar to the approach that Kippenberger had in art, right? Also, he was a, like extremely good painter, but purposefully made paintings that didn't necessarily show that. Was there, were there a lot of conversations between the scene around him and the music scene in Berlin, where you exchanged sort of concepts across oh. music and art? Because we were, uh, no, we didn't discuss so, so many things. We were doing things. <laughs> so we we hang out with Kippenberger and we played at his office. He called it the Büro, Kippenberger Büro, at Segitzdam in Kreuzberg. And I played with a different collaboration called Summe über Zukunft, later Liebesgier. You don't have to rem remember those names. And uh, uh, the, because of... The, We came out of the 68 generation who discussed everything. We didn't want to discuss things anymore. We wanted to do things because it was everything was discussed for hours and hours in the in the generation which we were fighting against, kind of thing. So we we just wanted to do things. I had mentioned before that Beate was and still is a sound engineer. How did you sync stuff on stage with, with all these like instrument changing, etc.? How did you still make it tight? We didn't, we didn't do so many instruments changes, but people did it. We didn't do it, but we didn't want to. I played drums because I didn't like anybody else. I didn't like any other people. I wanted to play. <laughs> you didn't want anyone else to play drums. Yeah, I wanted to play drums you. because I had an idea how I would do it. So, and we had some other drummers and I didn't like how they played and I said, I do, I do the drums. And uh, I did it really simple, but I have a good rhythmical feel, so, and it helped. 
I played accordion before, and th there you have to kind of, you know, do different things. Like, coordination. you learned coordination. that when you were when you were a child or yeah. a young person, yeah. you learned accordion. And uh, so malaria I formed after Mania D with Bettina Köster singing, me playing drums, Christina Hahn, who used to play with Glenn, Br Glenn Branca from New York, and Susanne Kuhnke, and Manong Pedursma playing guitar. So we had two drums and Still in regards to, to, to my sound engineering and syncing question, because yeah. you were playing machines that you couldn't easily... It's not like it. playing Ableton Live, basically. No, no. no. I mean, we had two drums and uh, Susanne played keyboards more. And then it was more a band. We didn't have so much syncing stuff. She played the synthesizer live. And when I played the cork, I had little notes, but it was really hard to, uh, to remember. It was always a bit different <laughs> because the cork is always different. So the whole setup, despite the, the punk idea, the whole like setting up your instruments on stage took you quite a while until you got anywhere. So there was more, you, you did have to prepare each show to, to make it work. Or could you just like, how, how spontaneous were you in, in that music making with an instrument like the Cork MS-20? Not, not, not much. Yeah. But it was, I played the Cork at the very beginning of Mania D for more. And then like, you gave it up. And then with Neubauten. And, and, and uh, in those days we had more improv, improv sessions. So longer tracks where we had time to kind of adjust it. And uh, for with Malaria, I played drums and uh, guitar and uh, backing vocals. So it was more a real live band. Did you consider yourself, because there, there's surprisingly few recordings, especially of Mania D. You know, you would think there should be a lot more. And I wonder, at that time, did you, did you even consider yourself a band that needs recordings to be out there? Or was it really just about hanging out and playing together because that's the best thing you can do on a Monday night, Thursday night, or yeah. whatever. Yeah. We wanted to entertain ourselves. <laughs> it was super boring and we wanted to, to do something and we wanted to do something which is more interesting than what anyone else is doing. So we just did what we wanted to do. And there was a, the big difference I think it was a very small scene then and there was no music business as such in Germany because music business was in UK and America and we didn't have any, we didn't, there was no nothing and we didn't, so it was fun, it was more for fun and art, that's why the art thing came in so naturally because We, we didn't have a biz, pop biz. With there being a music industry now, and it being like big and influential, or partly also not big and very underground, do you think nowadays you would still, if you were however old you were then, 20, now, would you still make music, although there is that industry? Or do you think you would probably not do it because you could actually get released nowadays? Uh, I have no idea because I'm too old to imagine to be young. <laughs> But if I, I think if I would start now, I would do uh, gardening. Ex like Design. radical gardening, extreme Radi gardening. Yeah, yeah. Or art. Yeah. Because the music business is... Mm, I, a lot of, uh, because I come from a non, not very uh, wealthy background and I think a lot of people now who start doing experimental, like arty music, they do have really rich parents. It's kind of, because, uh, you know, it's not a thing where you can make a living out of. It's really hard to make, and people know <laughs> it's hard to make a living out of music. So. So you need another source of income, ideally. Yeah. Also, 
I mean, you, with malaria, you did have some success. At least you were able to leave the country. You were able to leave the island We of West Berlin. We left the country the, the first year of existence. And you went to New York. New York. <laughs> Straight to New York. And, and If you can make it there. But the New York you encountered then was also very New York that there is now. So the places yeah. you played in New York It was very were, close to Berlin feel. It was very kind of uh, underground and Uh, somebody invited us to play there and then we, we went and then we, we played Washington, Philadelphia and came back and forth and did like then we met some friends and then we could play uh, Danceteria, Peppermint Lounge and Mud Club later. You're saying that it's as if you like, oh, play Danceteria. <laughs> it, sounds... yeah, we, we just, it just happened. But it, it, those were, I mean... At least speaking about it nowadays, those were like interesting. Studio 54. Yeah, you did. <laughs> It's not like a random place, really. <laughs> What kind of night was that? Excellent. Really? It's pure accident. What kind And of night was that that you played Studio 54 Studio with 54, malaria? That, that, that was uh, Pur. Great idea. And um, <laughs> Nina Hagen played there. And she didn't have a band. And then we, she asked, we were friends with Nina Hagen. Some might know, super Berlin superstar, punk, great person. And she asked us to be the backing band. And then she had only a bass player and she did three songs with him and three with us. And then we played as well. And then she wanted to play dr drums with us. <laughs> it was kind of fun. It was pretty like, fun. You're, you're better than I am. So no. <laughs> be your backing band. I guess most people in that scene, like Margrethe, for example, was sort of involved in also the political side of the struggle of living in West Berlin, which is mostly meant to be a squatter. Was that, was that your fight? Was it your fight to try to you know, squat houses and kind of um, rebel against big capitalism. We were supporting that. Actually, we, we did go on the street for it, but we, we, it wasn't, we were not 100% uh, on the street only. We were kind of more... How do you say that? We were political, but not too much. No. <laughs> More in a, in a private sort of in a private sphere. Was it a political stand to mostly play with women, or was it because it was more fun? It was just a natural thing. Yeah. Much more like that. It's not like you, there. There was no manifesto, or you wouldn't. You wouldn't have. That you, you, you wouldn't have stood on a stage and say, I mostly play with women. I know that in basically no. every interview in that time, like some, some music journalism dude is asking you, hey, you're only playing with women. And you're like... No, but we didn't like that. Uh, we didn't want... We, we, we wanted to uh, more have it as if it would be normal. So this, this was our attitude. I became a feminist in 2000. Do you remember the, the day? <laughs> some, some, <laughs> What happened? Somewhere in 2000. Because I had an interview with a Missy um, magazine, I think. And she asked me if I'm a feminist. And I really had to think about it. Because I never considered myself. I, I always acted if, as if everything is normal. I came out like in the end of the 70s. I was kind of an emancipated emancipated woman, girl, but then I kind of just ignored it and did what I did. And then I, I realized that all the girls are not there anymore, just me, basically, like, you know, the, the music scene was very male, and then I, I called myself a feminist. In 2000? Suddenly. <laughs> what, 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 has, what, what happened to everyone? I mean, this, like, from Malaria was, I think, playing, you, you kind of existed in the, the first time you existed, you existed until about 84. And then these years until 89, what happened to the scene? What happened to the girls you were playing with? What happened uh, to everyone? Uh, we, uh, 
Beate came back to Berlin. She used to be in Düsseldorf. Bettina stayed in New York. Christine stayed in New York. Beate came back to Berlin. And me, Beate and... Oh, Beate, Manon and me... You did Matador. <laughs> we yeah. uh, formed Matador. Which, and then we got an Atari computer and started programming and did more... Much, got into this kind of more electronic field. The, the clubs that were around sort of in the, in the second half of the 80s, I mean, ESO 36 still exists, for example, as you just said, but did that change? Did, I mean, leading up, no one saw the wall coming down, right? No one, no one anticipated that to happen. But did, how, how did the vibe change? Like now thinking back to the second half of the 80s, did it feel different here or rather five kilometers from here? Uh, the end of uh, beginning of the 80s was very enthusiastic. Lots of stuff happening, like new bands. Everybody was doing something, and then like the, suddenly it got really dark. Lots of drugs, and it really kind of imploded. And there was no support from the scene anymore. It was really kind of getting a bit funny. I think it's really nice in the movie, in the B movie as well. You can really see like it was kind of not good anymore and I was gonna I decided I wanted to leave the city at that stage but then the wall came down and then suddenly it was Berlin was really exciting again I mean it's new double the size new clubs <laughs> new light nightlife new people new people yeah uh, warmth human warmth coming from the east I really like I had a lot of new friends from East uh, Germany, East Berlin, who, it was really cool. Okay, so I have to ask this since I'm A, too young, and B, grew up in West Germany and don't have a clue really. But this like, let's say the very first, one of the very first nights that you went out after the wall come down, you're standing in a bar that you always go to in West Berlin, you suddenly have like new people around you, like you're a punk too, oh that was like, I mean, post-punk kind of. Did you, in that music scene, did you like quickly meet across this, you know, the, the fallen border? Did you go to, did you reach out to musicians from the GDR? We met a couple, um, Ornament und Verbrechen, like with the, and then the Lippok and Jestram uh, family, The circle. Robert Lippock. Robert yeah. and Ronald Lippock, Tarwater. But that was a bit later, I think. Uh, at the beginning, it was just uh, going to clubs and like uh, discovering the streets. And it was really dark in East Berlin, there was no lights. And so you had to kind of, where are, where are we? <laughs> And then the clubs were, you had to dig through holes and suddenly there was a club and it was really cool. I really enjoyed it. And shopping was really difficult because everybody was queuing up for the supermarkets and you couldn't get anything anymore. But like it was hard to get stuff at the supermarket, but it was easy to get spaces. Yeah. Suddenly. There are lots of empty spaces. And the, uh, Then in the 90s, everybody, you know, the whole scene changed because the East, German, East Berlin was suddenly so exciting. Everybody moved to, and you got cheap apartments, everybody moved to East Berlin, for, even from West Berlin, like mostly Prenzlauer Berg. And, and it was like the, the life in West Berlin kind of died out a little, the underground, there was not much stuff going on. Kreuzberg got really cheap, the apartments, at one point, because everybody moved to uh, Prenzlauer Berg and uh, around there. And then uh, suddenly, when, when, it, when it was official that Kreuzberg, uh, half, like the rents were half price, it got really popular again. It, then Berlin got a big city like New York, where you just, the, uh, the areas, you know, Prenzlauer Berg, now super expensive. Mitte was cheap at the beginning, super expensive. 
Kreuzberg, expensive. Neukölln, Kreuzköln, Neukölln. Now let's see what's coming up. It's like, so all the artists and young people who move to Berlin always have to find a new Bezirk to find a new a, area. Yeah. yeah. But in, at this time, in the beginning of the 90s, you actually came here to Funkhaus. Ah, that's right. What, yes. like, please, I so mean, they, they, I know this place when it used to be a radio station. Please tell that, I want, I want to know the whole story. So okay. someone told you, we're going to go to this radio station in the GDR. What did you expect? No, I was, uh, actually, I played at the 20 years Neubauten, I think it must have been, or 10. More ten, like ten, ten, ten years, <laughs> you know, uh, ten years Neubauten concert at the Neue Welt, and I played uh, on my sampler. I played an old track we played together live, and Heiner Müller was there, the writer, yeah. the writer, uh, and he saw me, and they were just uh, producing the Hamlet Machine at the Funkhaus here, and he wanted to me to be Ophelia. So then the producer, Mr. Rindfleisch and Blixer picked me up in West, West Berlin and we drove here and actually recorded this, the uh, vocals here and the Neubauten did the music for the radio play here. Yeah, this is, uh, and so this, yeah, it used to be a, a radio station. But the, the, the people working here at that time with you were mostly employees from back in the day, so it was fully functioning as a GDR radio station. How did they react to you doing your Neubauten? Oh, well, that was a Heiner Müller um, thing. But they were still. really open, very, very nice. And then later I did more uh, radio play, music for radio plays with uh, Rindfleisch here in this, in this studio. And it was really cool. Uh, they had a lot of female tone uh, engineers, uh, sound, sound engineers. engineers yeah. Surprise for me because I'm, you know, I've seen West German radio stations and mostly are male. But that's like in, so. in any engineering job, in any yeah. engineering profession, there were more females in East Germany yeah. than in the West. A lot. Lots of like, but for me it was wow, you know, to work with three female sound engineers was great. You said earlier that, I mean, they, you said Berlin was great to go to as a woman in of the 70s, or it was great to go to if you, if you were queer. Um, Berlin then opening up to East Germany, did it even, or becoming actually a part of Eastern Germany um, after the wall came down, did it make it an even better place to be a woman in because of that? because there were more female professionals in East Germany than in the West? No. <laughs> no. Making radio plays, as you said, and working with Heiner Müller, etc., um, that allowed you to access other funds. It allowed you to get paid maybe in another way than as an independent musician, right? How, how did you manage to financially survive in all these years? Because it's not, I mean, we see, we see all these, like, listen to this amazing music, we see all these amazing gigs, but I, I mean, it's, it's kind of obvious that you can't, you can't be malaria on stage four times a month and then pay your rent off that, or you... Yeah. The malaria was finished in '84 already. So, yeah. and I, I did some uh, um, spoken word project in Canada with Myra Davis. We had a stipendium at the. Uh, there was a thing called the instability of the feminist subject in uh, Banff Center for the Arts. Uh, and I did radio plays, music for radio plays. Just found some uh, more solo kind of work for myself and then I bought myself my first Macintosh so I was able to produce at home which is like that was uh, very when uh, when about when was that like 90s 90s yeah. I think 90 yeah when it was kind of not that expensive anymore 
But would you because would, it used to be very expensive. <laughs> would you say then, looking back, were you were you struggling? Were you oh, like yeah. sometimes? It's, I always had big money problems and like doubts. You know, what am I doing? I think I was getting 30 then, and when you get 30, you think now you have to be a vaccine, you know, you have to an adult, yeah, an adult, and you have to find the way in your in your, you have to find the place in in your life, and so that was a big pressure on me. But I was I come out of a female uh, household, and my mother always was working, so I I never had the idea that I marry somebody who will feed me. I always had the, I knew I had to do it. I had to make the money for my living. And uh, yeah, I just didn't worry so much. I just tried not to worry too much and took the opportunities I got and made the best out of it. And then strangely, if, you do, if you're not afraid of things, they come. Mm -hmm. You know, suddenly things are, jobs were coming, and then I was active all the time too. You know, you can't just sit at home and wait for <clears throat> jobs to come. I was doing stuff, so you meet people, and then I got this offer. Or then we had uh, did albums with Mania D, and yeah, I worked in studio service, soldered cables, did some other jobs to make some living. I was never a good bar girl. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I don't know, it's not my thing. <laughs> not my... But you, it's a, you, you But just... a lot of musicians do this. Yeah, so. but, but it's also in the evening. But it's I, maybe convenient. I DJ'd. Manon was working at the bar and I DJ'd. Where, where did you first start DJing? Because that's kind <laughs> of the, the 80s, 90s, already. In the 80s. Oh, already. Because I wasn't a good bar girl. <laughs> so I DJed and Manong, my best friend, she worked at the bar. But your first proper... And it was better paid too. The bar or the DJ? No, the DJ. Oh, that's... I'm not sure that's still the case in, in Berlin bars nowadays. No, that's <laughs> true. It's more like you pay to DJ, you get paid to do the bar. Maybe. But in those days... And then I just... Some, I still sometimes DJ. But your first sort of... DJ residency was with the Ocean Club. Yeah. In so the, the, the basement of the, the very first Trezor? Was it the first Trezor or was it? Trezor Leipziger Straße. Which is the, the very first? I think so. Uh, and we, I had an album, then I did a solo album with lots of friends called Members of the Ocean Club. And for the record release party, we had, uh, we thought, okay, it's called members of the Ocean Club because I didn't want to have a band anymore. I wanted to have more like a free-form club thing. And then the idea was, okay, if record release, we should do a club in a club. And then Daniele Picciotto did a decoration in the, uh, down in the Tresor in Berlin. And we had a record release party there and it was so cool that we continued. Uh, every week we had, a, had the Ocean Club with kind of strange music. These so clubs like Trezor, which I think opened in 92 or so, um, and other places that were later mostly playing techno in Berlin, was that, were, were those spaces where you immediately felt like you're at the right place? Or was that confusing and different to what you Yeah, you coming from the sort of be, having already been active in the 80s. Did that, is that something you, you were part of from the beginning? Or did, if you're like, what are, what are people doing here? They're like staying awake for three days. I mean, you probably did that too in 81, but yeah. it was. <laughs> That's nothing new. That was nothing new. But the new. attitude, but, was it? No, uh, it was really strange because nobody knew me and knew us anymore. Like nobody was talking about the 80s in the 90s. And that was kind of was it freeing. It was nice. And I had the feeling when I saw Jeff Mills playing at the Trezor, it really reminded me. It's diff it was different, but it reminded me of this kind of uh, 
pureness and straightness from the very beginning of the 80s. And so I liked it. A lot of my other colleagues from the 80s didn't like techno at all. Why not? What did they Because decide? it was like, I don't know, they were really, they thought it was uh, not right. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I th it reminded me very much of, it was very underground. It, it was great and pure and true. One thing... Just, like, it changed yeah. a lot. One thing that I think it might still be the case in Berlin, but it isn't in many other cities, um, is that there are now no cameras in many of the clubs. And there were like certainly no cameras in Trezor yeah. in the first half of the 90s. And that did allow for a certain... It did allow for nudity. It did allow people to be naked on the dance floor if they wanted to, right? I have never seen that. You have never seen that. So it, it's not actually a thing. It's, it's, it's just myths that people, that people tell. I wasn't there every night, but I didn't... I, I'm asking it so in regards to... We had journals. Yeah. Growing <laughs> journals. That's, that's quite the opposite. Oh, it's not, depending on, on what you like. But I'm asking also in regards to, because um, tracks like Kaltes Klares Wasser, which we heard earlier, I find are quite erotic in regards to the lyrics. You might want to Google uh, that or internet search it, uh, translate the lyrics for yourself, where it's sort of about um, cold water on certain body parts, etc. Um, did you, I mean, you sort of reflecting on being rather attractive young women at that time, Did that, were you making a conscious choice to put that out there? Did it happen ironically? Did it, like, was it just a thing that you were just doing? Were you thinking, we're going to do this, and it's kind of, it does play with people's sexual fantasy? Oh, uh, I, for me, music has, pop music, you know, kind of has to be sexy, in a way, as well, to, it doesn't have to, have to be but it is a part of it the body part you know so I have no restrictions you know I, I don't I, uh, I can't say it in English <coughs> tell me in German also ich finde man kann das äh, nicht einfach negieren dass es dass Sex existiert und das ist auch part okay Sex I'm, I'm going to say you, you can't just Yeah, you can't deny that sex exists yeah. and that it's part of, of who you are. What pop music? culture. Of pop culture. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in, in Ocean Club in the 90s, you also had sort of people dressed up and you, you, you created a space that, I mean, it wasn't a garden, it was more like a subterranean yeah. garden, I guess. So how... You had a mermaid. How, how did it look behind like? behind the bar. There was like weekly, right? The, the Every Ocean Sunday Club. night. Upstairs was Ellen Alien and Tanit, and we were downstairs. Who, what, what did each of the rooms represent sort of musically? What did Ellen well, we Alien had, and Tanit play and what did you play? I, we couldn't hear each other because we were... But you know, you still, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You still went upstairs probably sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, and they were more techno and we were more experimental all over the place. And that led to, well, I guess some of you might know, led to a radio show on, well, Berlin Airwaves. And radio 1, yeah. So uh, with the, at the same time, I think, no, when I started the label. So in 1997, uh, we, after, after the club nights, I was kind of every Sunday was too much. I wanted to, I thought, oh, Thomas, I think we should do a radio show. Thomas Fehlmann, partner in uh, the club. Uh, and then uh, he said, oh, great, but how? And then he got a call from Radio One, which, which started in 1997, and they asked him to do a radio show. And then we said, okay, let's do Ocean Club. And then we started Ocean Club radio show every week, which 
it was really a very nice uh, show where we introduced uh, electronic and international experimental electronic and cl club music and we had DJ sets and we had a mermaid and we had some spoken word artists and it was pretty cool. This Ocean Club, you already said that earlier, it was more of a collective and less of a band and that has kind of been an idea. I mean, I would even, when I look at Mania Day and Malaria, etc., to me it feels like a big collective because I kind of everyone played with everyone. But you're also doing the thing now with um, Monika Werkstatt. What, why is that? Why do you prefer working in collectives than in, in bands? What, what does that allow that the band doesn't allow for? Because a band uh, is always uh, eingeengt. It's uh, three, like the people who are in the band then always have to be in the band and you can't you can change it. And I think a club or a collective, it has, you know, people change and some want to go and some want to come in. And it's nice to have a kind of a flow happening. I think it's it's really nice to collaborate with others because I think music especially is one of the only art forms who, who allow that. Because if you're a painter, it's difficult to collaborate. But with music, with the tones in the air, you know, you suddenly you, you make a tone and it, it rubs against the other tone, somebody else, and, and it, something new comes out of it. It's a really nice thing to play music together. So oh. collaborate collaborative work I think is really important and you every time I, I love to collaborate with others and every time I do it I learn something new because you, you kind of you you know I suck into the other person and <laughs> take what I want <laughs> having <laughs> and I give what I have to give having done that over so many years can you, do you feel like you have a defined role that you always take on when you collaborate? Are you, are you, the organi are you, you know, creating the space that everyone comes to? Do you more like prefer to be on the outside in collaborations? Is, is there a good run good collaboration sort of figure? Do you, do you become someone, you like repeat certain patterns, patterns when collaborating, when communicating with people? No. No, because, for example, when I collaborated with Antje, when I do, I do a lot of uh, two-person things uh, with AGF. It was uh, Antje Greier Fraktion. Yeah, uh, it, we did the Grey Good Fraktion, and that was more very electronic, free approach, but. Uh, uh, very modern technology kind of thing. After that, I collaborated with Hans-Joachim Ermler from Faust. Totally different thing because he is a kind of a Krautrock keyboard uh, synthesizer maniac and uh, really into improv. And I had always this kind of difficulties with improv improvisation. I was more like the getting structure into a track and, uh, you know, organize it and have it, have it proper. And, and he brought me back into this kind of free form. And the influence of him, I took into the Monika Werkstatt because I really, suddenly I thought it's really important to have this improv stuff back into the music. And which I had at the very beginning of my musical career with Mania D and Neubauten. And then along the line, I got very much into a more song structure, structuring more, being organizing it, cleaning it out. And then I got, now I'm back into the more rough stuff. Ocean Club and Ebeck and all that, that's like mid-90s. And after you started with two labels, actually, but maybe... Uh, you, Mm -hmm. uh, Morbid was before. Oh, yeah, in 1997, with the same year as Ocean Club Radio, 
I started a label called Monica Enterprise. I already had a label called Moabit Music for the re-release of the Malaria and for, for Matador. And then I started uh, Monica, with, uh, where I signed artists from Berlin and from everywhere, you know, mostly female artists. Mostly female artists, because you felt like it's a necessity to do that? No, oh, because of my personal interest. Yeah. So what, what kind of Berlin was that, that this kind of existed in late that 90s? Was, that was uh, post-techno uh, a little bit, and where Berlin was full of, there were only places for DJs and no places for music makers. And then uh, they played this, there was this little Wohnzimmer scene and they played in actual living rooms and the music was they were, was like the indie alternative scene. Uh, it's hardcore, you know, the new quiet is a new loud kind of thing. Where, you know, the major companies were signing this stage, stadium rock. That was a big thing, stadium hip hop, stadium rock. And this was the opposite. Southcore so that kind was of kind of the exciting thing about it. <laughs> it. It translates roughly to gentle core, I guess. Yeah, gentle core. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think that's a, a term that's in use, but obviously you say hardcore because it, it rhymes with um, hardcore. But still, that, that, still like things like Love Parade, etc., kind of continued at the same time, and you continued DJing, and not everything was sort of easy despite sort of this living room scene? Or was it even that you, you, you kind of wanted to create these safe living room spaces because... Um, I just picked it up, I just released it. It, it ex existed. Yeah. Joe Taboo organized a lot of these uh, concerts. <clears throat> And that's where I saw Barbara Morgenstern playing the, for the first time. Really impressed me to see this woman playing solo on her organ, this great, her own songs. And I thought, wow, she's really good. And so I signed her and a lot of first signings came out of that. And, but that later I released Cobra Killer, which is much different again. So it's not necessarily all nice and easy. And this nice feel and this warmth has, is reflecting the, What, what we all needed then, because life was difficult and we wanted to have it, make it out cozy to us, for ourselves. Um, your, your role in that label, apart from well, reaching out to artists and uh, <laughs> reaching out to artists and well, getting them to release stuff on your label, kind of where that expanded to being sort of a producer in this collectives, right? So you you weren't producing. I imagine you're producing the Monika Werkstatt. So how, what, what yeah, is your actual... Uh, uh, Monika Werkstatt, I, I organized it. Yeah. This is kind of, uh, this is an idea that's a newer idea, the Monika Werkstatt. That's my recent, kind of the last five years we did this. These are artists out of the Monika Moabit surrounding, female artists who are uh, collab collaborating together on new stuff. So we, uh, we were in the studio for... Now we did concerts together where everybody plays solo and then together. We all three, mostly three or four artists playing together to introduce the artist plus collaborate. So it's a solo show plus a collaboration show. And it's a whole, it's a great night. And then we were in the studio together um, producing new material for three days, 10 female producers. And we recorded and recorded and recorded. And afterwards, everybody took two tracks home and finished the, the production of the songs of the material, added stuff, everybody did it different. Some are like a remix, some are real songs, uh, because all of the participating artists were producers as well, so that was kind of handy. After 
first playing the drums, then playing the cork, or maybe the other way around, and then buying your first Macintosh computer. Which are the instruments or which is the software um, that you feel most comfortable expressing yourself in nowadays? What is your thing where you're like, this is, this is what I need to make music that I couldn't live without? A cigarette. A cigarette. <laughs> a cigarette and a mic. <laughs> and a glass of red wine. I don't know. <laughs> I don't... Mm, I, I don't want to be comfortable. Yeah. There's... For being creative, I don't want to be comfortable. I want to be creative, but not comfortable. Did you get, coming from this um, geniale dilettanten, which um, translates to genius dilettants, um, I think that's how you say it in English, uh, coming from that background, did, did you hit a wall ever where you fe felt like, I need to learn a certain instrument better, I need to learn more about this software to actually do what I want? Or were you able to stay with that attitude of just like... No, I, I learned the software. What did you I, learn? I mean, I, I, I get I, every little new synthesizer you you get, you have to get to have to learn it. But I mostly don't like to read the manual. So, but I, don't I think anyone does. I'm but. I'm pretty kind of easy, pretty quick with technique. What do you use then? What, what I use? What is, what is I, I just got myself a, a make make noise uh, Ocoast. Uh, Synthesizer, which is a little complicated, and then I got some uh, cork, the little toys, the uh, cork um, Volker series, four different. That's what I use a lot. It's kind of fun and fast. Then Ableton Live, I use. I used to have uh, Logic. We started with, when I got my Atari. We had the Cube, uh, not Cubis, um, Creator and Notator, which then went into uh, Logic. Or logic. Logic. Oh, yeah, yeah. logic, you're right. And, but I switched to uh, Ableton Live. That's what I work with. You had to, I mean, I know that Mark Reader kind of produced Malaria at one point, and you went like to studios with other people. Um, But at the same time, it was kind of like more punk maybe back then. Do, do, do you feel making music, do you feel more independent with your setup now? Or do you feel like you were more independent when you could just more or less just go up a stage in SO36 in 1981 and play the cork? Are you, are you freer now with the technology? Did that free you? Uh, yeah, definitely. Because it was really hard Uh, in the old days to to have a studio booked and then you had an engineer you didn't get on with or something uh, or uh, you know you could, I have much more control I have total control because I, I'm I, I'm my own, I'm the producer and engineer so that means that the result is much closer to what I wanted yeah I think it's I'm I'm happy now. <laughs> and you do release your own music. Yeah, and I have my own label. So I don't have many people to kind of tell me what to do. And so I'm pretty independent. And uh, I have to kind of just question myself. And if, it's, if, it's, if this is good enough or not. But I have some berata. Who, 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 who are your advisors? No, just some people I talk to, like business partners as well, who I uh, employ. <laughs> is, that, is that funny because you don't, you don't see yourself as an employer? Or? No, because if I employ somebody, he doesn't really say the truth, does he? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that's a, that's a, an interesting point, though, because, I mean, you, you've, always, you've been an influential person in this city for so long. People do respect you. You work a lot with women. You work a lot with women who are younger than you naturally because they sort of the come into existence. <laughs> um, is it hard sometimes to be in that position where you feel like people, women, respect you 
but you release the record and you're like, I can't pay you what you think you should get paid to kind of pick maybe the most difficult example. Is it hard to be particularly from woman to woman, tell another woman that things don't work the way she thinks to kind of cut off her dreams? <clears throat> it's reality. No, I think it's really good to have to talk to difficult uh, to to talk about difficult things as well. I'm 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 the person who is not afraid to say anything. Hey, this is Jordan Rothline again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a minute to tell you a little bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and events. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Finally, there's a whole world of other great music programming like this to check out at redbullradio.com. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. <laughs>